Welcome to the Motoring Podcast, your weekly discussion of motoring news. This is episode 545 on Tuesday the 3rd of October 2023. Hello, I'm Alan. Hello, I'm Andrew. And this week we'll be wrestling with charts, graphs and statistics. In new new car news, we realise one company hadn't actually said that they were EV only post-2030. And in points of interest, we advise you to take a very long lunch indeed. But first, for the first time in quite a while, actually, we have some follow-up. Well, no, no, that's not quite right. For the first time since last week, where most of the show was follow-up. Officially declared as follow-up now. Sorry, okay. I did caveats. Oh, we're sticklers even in this show. Uh, <laughs> so we do it to ourselves, everybody. We don't just do it to people we're talking about. But the government has officially now, finally, announced what the zero emission vehicle mandate is, what it entails. It's pretty much what we were discussing last week. There are percentages of each brand's fleet that have to be zero emission when registered new in the UK from 2024, moving up to 2030. And then there is a jump between 2030 and 35 because they haven't worked out what the changes to the percentages are going to be by then. But obviously, they're going to fill in that last 20% uh, between 2030 and 2035. Lots have been said about this. <laughs> Fortunately, because the dust had settled a bit by the time the actual announcement came out, some of it was truthful. Yes. Well, yeah, yes, there, there is that. I think the important point really is the headline on the statement from Mike Hawes, chief executive of the SMMT, saying the industry will deliver this, but mandates don't make markets. Hmm. You know, you can say we're going to, we want everyone to sell this many, but if people don't actually buy them, then that's a little bit trickier. But what will happen is the manufacturers will just throttle supply of the non-EVs. Yeah. And the market will drop in overall registrations. Yes, absolutely. But there needs to be some kind of legislation. And I guess this is it. <laughs> yes. Is really where that is going. Yeah. Um, th there does need to be something to help us make that change. Is this the best way? Probably not. Is it the way we've got? Yeah. There will be two links in the show notes. One is to an autocar article talking around the topic, and then we will have the SMMT article in their direct response. So you can read both those by clicking the links in the show notes. First of the new news, mm -hmm. and big report out by the government, and there are lots of headlines. And they say things like, UK road deaths rise for first time since 2017. And, okay, where do we begin with this? It is not good that 1,711 people lost their lives on the road in 2022. That's a fair statement, I think. That is correct. I think everybody agrees on that. What then happens from there on in uh, varies wildly. Lots of people then going, oh, we must do this, that, and the next thing. I think what's important really is to try to put some of these numbers in context. Yes, you have to look at the official report and the official figures and the way they have chosen to present that information, hmm. which can sometimes change in the same segment. <laughs> Yes, but actually the official report is easier to read and to draw conclusions from than most of the reporting on it. But the way that it is done as well allows you to pull a conclusion no matter where you stand on this, whether you think oh, yeah, that's true. our roads are incredibly dangerous or whether you think our roads are okay or whether you think our roads are safe. 
the way that the data is is handed to us, all three cases can be made for such. Yes. A little bit of context, though. The report mostly relates back. It, it, most of the discussion is relating back to 2019. So it goes, it compares 2022 to 2019 because that's the last time that traffic and miles driven uh, were roughly comparable. Yeah. Or were normal. But for the other years in between, it's not really comparable because, of course, there were like three months of lockdown and people not on the roads and all these kinds of things. Generally speaking, compared to 2019, there is a reduction in casualties, in fatalities of all these kinds of things. A little bit more when it comes to other vehicle occupants. There's a 4% increase for motorbikes. There's those sorts of things going on. So there is a, a bit of a variance there but it's still most of the same or better. And that's basically like that uh, across the board. There is a lot of shouting and screaming and saying that these are these is terrible, what is the government doing about it, and other things like that. And partly, to be honest, I'm not sure that the government can do anything about it. I don't really think it's a government problem. Well, one thing that was pointed out, actually on that one thing that was pointed out which did feel like it made a lot of sense actually is that if mm. uh, at the very start of this the chart one talks about the reported road fatalities from 1979 to 2022 yes and it shows quite a drop between 82 and nearly 2000 mm. that's when the government was running educational infomercials about road safety yeah clunk click every trip and yeah, all that stuff and then that stopped and we plateaued <laughs> it a bit, works but then we dropped again which i don't know why that was that's maybe something they could do to help mm. um it's very difficult in today with with the way that people get very emotional about the nanny state and things how they produce that but i still think it can be done yes yeah i think so that's a really good point actually and it's fairly inexpensive as well it is actually yeah yeah. So one of the things I think, and you can target far more mm. than, than maybe you used to be able to, you know, you know, YouTube campaigns and all these kind of things. One of the things that I find is very interesting was the international comparisons table. Lots of hullabaloo, lots of, lot, lots of noise. And, and then you think, well, okay, let's, let's look at this in the context of the rest of the world. And of course, no fatalities, injuries, et cetera, are, are, are good, by the way. Let's try to have fewer. And we come in at joint fourth, yeah. I think, in the world. Uh, ahead of us are such heavily populated countries as Norway, Sweden, and Iceland, Japan and Denmark, and the UK. We are all the same at 26 road fatalities per million population. You know, and then you've got Switzerland, Northern Ireland, Irish Republic, Germany, Finland, etc. Places like France, quite far down with 48. Alan, who's at the bottom? But right at the bottom of the table, below, by the way, Bulgaria, Serbia, and Romania, by a significant margin, is the United States of America. I could have a whole separate podcast on driving standards, road infrastructure for safety, and all of these kind of things based on being here in the US. What I want to point out is we're pretty good at road safety. We could still be better. Yes. But screaming and shouting ain't going to do much we're at the stage where it's to do with education it's to do with infrastructure it's to do with even the countryside mm -hmm. on that front i was particularly interested to note that the type of road and the 
um, incidents there. And it turns out motorways are by far the safest roads for all types. If you've ever done a road safety, to say a road safety course, yeah, a speed awareness course, they do point out actually that urban roads are by far the most dangerous. It's almost as though those who were talking about smart motorways were lying. Yeah. Motorways, by the way, down 47%. Casualties down 47% from 2012, over 10 years, down 17% from 2019. Uh, rural roads down 39% from 2012, down 6% from 2019. Urban roads down 29% from 2012, down 8% from 2019, but still urban roads. 750 casualties per billion miles traveled. Uh, rural roads, 306, and motorways, 78. And they still say the most dangerous part of flying is driving to the airport, possibly in the US. There's lots of stuff there. It's actually a very, I mean, as Andrew says, you can, there are lies, damn lies, and statistics. You can, you can slice these whichever way you want. If you go and read these, it is a very good document. There is lots and lots of information. Right down to proportion of car occupant fatalities not wearing the seatbelts. And also whether an area is deprived or not, and the number of oh, incidents in those. I mean, it's really fascinating stuff. However, you have to go in with your spidey senses on full and really pay attention to what the information is they're talking about and how they are trying to present it. Yeah. Otherwise, you could get the wrong end of the stick here. Just one quick one, though. Uh, wearing your seatbelts, 21% of all car occupant fatalities, the people in the cars were not wearing their seatbelts, 21%. Do wear your seatbelt, clunk, click every trip, etc. As I say, the education stuff works, because I remember that uh, 40 years later. Interestingly, just to round this out, they've got the e-scooter one. Oh, right. They're going to have to make a new line. They are, yes. So there was 12 people killed associated with e-scooter use last year. 11 were the e-scooters and one pedestrian. There was 356 e-scooter users seriously injured, 782 slightly injured. Given the noise... Mm, that's why I'm mentioning it. You would have thought there were more, wouldn't you? Well, there are 60 serious injuries of pedestrians and 17 serious injuries of bicycle riders. One motor bike and four car occupants. As a result of e-scooters, all right? This is that one. As a result of an e-scooter incident. Okay. That's, that's much higher. Yes. It shows that something needs to be done, but is completely banning and screaming that they're awful and it's all hooligans the right thing? I'm not so sure. It's the what percentage are on their own of that compared to higher. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are... Um, stratifications within that as well. Yes, as with all these things. There is yeah, nuance in there, although you would find yep. it hard to believe sometimes. Anyway, enough of statistics. I'm going to move us on to Aston Martin. Yes. And Utree, the most unfortunate conglomerate, uh, has taken a larger share of Aston Martin now. They have gone up 3.27% to 26.23% overall of Aston Martin shares. Don't forget, they're followed by Saudi Arabia's Public Investment Fund and Geely. Just a quick one there. Motor dealership group Pendragon has reported uh, record profits recently. They made £36.7 million in the first six months of the year. 
on a revenue of £2.09 billion. Wow. Yeah, exactly. As a result, people are trying to trying to take them over. They want a slice of that. Uh, so the leading bidder at the minute is a group called Lithia, which is American, I yes, believe. they're all American. Yes, they're all American. Oh, I was surprised. They're all American. However, Auto Nation has submitted a bid for the group as well. And there's also a joint offer from Hedon Group and Penske as well. Pendragon Chief Berman said that those latest two offers were unsolicited, but are now under consideration. If, when they, well, when, not if, when they do go, that'll leave us with just one UK-based or owned mm-hmm. company that is a, is a dealership that's on the stock market. Yeah. Interesting how outside investors have seen the UK as a profitable location. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it helps us as the consumer in any way. But no, no. Some people do well out of it, i.e. shareholders. Yeah. It's thought that that third one, the Penske and Heaton one, might be a problem because Penske already owns Seitner. Oh, okay. That might come under the Competitions Commission, might well go, mm, no, 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 no. That's fair enough. Because um, Pendragon own Stratstone, don't they? So Sitner and Stratstone yes. directly fight each other for luxury premium brands. Yeah, the, the, the two brands that jump to mind there are BMW. Both of them have, have BMW dealerships. Yeah. This all sounds a little bit removed, but ultimately does have a, a knock-on effect on where and how we can buy cars. Yeah, uh, in the UK. Speaking of which, this time it's personal. <laughs> we have talked in the past about how Ford is revamping their dealership locations. Stellantis are doing the same. Basically, all most of the manufacturers are, but we'd miss that Toyota were doing this. Mm-mm. So it's obviously been done on the quiet. Well, and um, it looks like some people are unhappy that they've lost their franchise. Th- as I, I, I something jokingly said just there, this time it's personal. And it is. So lots of the manufacturers over the years have been trying to consolidate, uh, have been consolidating their dealer groups. Some of them have been doing it for quite a long time. It means that in Scotland, if you want to buy uh, a Renault, for example, you basically have to go to Arnold Clark. Joy. It's a not dissimilar story for Citroën, for Peugeot, for any of those brands, pretty much. It's Arnold Clark or bust. Actually, just saying that. I was thinking the the exception in Perth is Peugeot, which I'm which is the same dealer group as we're about to talk about. Toyota are now doing the same. It's part of trying to move towards an agency model, but the challenge is that whenever you get into some of the remote, more remote places, family owned dealership have been selling brands cars for a long, long time. They have loyal customers who go to them, who trust them. And it's not necessarily like, say, I don't know, a change to somewhere on the in an industrial park or a retail park on the outskirts of Northampton. Mm. It is slightly different. And I say that because one of the casualties of the way Toyota are rejigging is Struens in Perth. It's going from being, you know, okay, hands up here. I bought four, four Yaris from them. My sister bought two. My mom's bought one. Five Ravs. To, so we're a bit of a, you know. Why, have you got some sort of loyalty to a well-run dealership, Alan, by any chance? Yes, I do. I do. I guess. Yes, I do. 
you know who you're going to be dealing with. You know what's going to happen. And to be honest, the dealership is is at least as important as a brand, if not more so. And that's the same there, by the way. I did throw one for Rocky and Mazda in Corby in the same kind of way. I'd heard rumors of this about six months ago and then mutterings until uh, an email went out to my mom uh, a few weeks ago saying, as of November, we're not going to be selling Toyota anymore. But this one was just whipped out from underneath them. It seems that it was just a, we're going to revoke your, your franchise. Yeah, it's discussed in the article that we've got linked in the show notes. After 40 years. So this stuff is all covered in the article from AM Online. Uh, it's going to Eastern Western, who aren't the worst motor group in the world. But again, it's a consolidation. That means if you're in the east of Scotland, then basically you have to buy from uh, Eastern Western Group. If you're in the west of Scotland, then it's, it's Macklin Motors, which is part of Virtue. It's this consolidation, this loss of the smaller trusted dealership, especially in Scotland. It, it's even more so in Scotland because you basically got on a clock, bought everything up. I mean, they did the same. Mercedes-Benz did the same. What? Oh, God, it's probably about 15 years ago, I suppose. But they did the same. They went from Dixon's to what's now basically part of Arnold Clark. And this constant consolidation, consolidation, consolidation. And, and buyers are losing choice. And they're, they're losing the ability to go and buy from somewhere else within a reasonable distance uh, or within a reasonable time of them. Yeah, but so many are going to agency model anyway that you, you, that choice is being removed at a more fundamental level. It's not just that, it's the after-sales service and all that stuff, which mm. doesn't matter whether you're on the agency model or not. It's not just the buying. It's the rest of it. No, I know, I know. I bought GRMN. There was, there was nothing that the chaps at Struan could do about the price or anything like that. It was a setup. This is how much it's going to cost. This is, this is it. And I'm sure that they got a decent cut out of that. Oh, yeah, but that's why you went back for double-figure cars across your family. Yeah. yeah that's just Yaris alone. Um... <laughs> One of them was bought in France. It was bought somewhere else. It's, it's just, hmm. It's the fact that it's, it's, it's very close to home and it's, 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 it's somewhere I, I use and trust mm. really makes it sink in. But I think it's symptomatic of a wider thing across. It's been going on for a while. I think it's symptomatic of a wider thing across the whole car dealership world. And that's how we end up with these massive conglomerates. Your Gamma Clarks, your Pendragons, your all these, there's a lot that we've just been talking about. Shall I get down off my somewhat... I, by the way, I was... He says here, has left staff at the Scottish Car Dealer Group devastated and very disappointed. I'm certainly very disappointed and quite sad. I wouldn't say I'm devastated. That would be a little bit local newspaper. Mm. But yeah, I'm, I'm really quite sad about that. Yep. Very, actually sad. Let's move away from that and take us to Volkswagen, Alan. Volkswagen have hired someone new. Yes. A... Non-middle-aged white German man from within Volkswagen has been employed by Volkswagen in a senior position. Amazing. Yes, well, that's not the case. So this is uh, Sanjay Lal, veteran of both Rivian and Tesla, has been hired to lead the new software-defined vehicle hub at Cariad. Yes, I know, I know. But you've got if you're going to attract these people, you've got to give them a nice... Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, it's a showy-offy title and hub and stuff. But he has 25 years of automotive software. When it comes to Tesla, the software is, is not seen as the issue. It is still seen as, as amongst the top in the industry. It is definitely seen as one of the better parts of a Tesla uh, ownership. 
Yes, some of the stuff it's been made to do, I'm sure uh, Mr. Lal just rolled his eyes and, and made the indicators make farty noises instead of traditional clicks and all that kind of thing. But he's someone who comes with a very... I think it would be hard to think of someone with a stronger CV in this area than him. Whether or not he's allowed to get on with it and do it is obviously a different matter. Uh, he may well find the Volkswagen management style is very different from the one person at the top says this, so we do it type approach, which he, he's probably more more familiar with. And also then how ultimately it integrates with, with everything else in the vehicle may well work a different way. But I would think that as long as Volkswagen let him get on with it and give him the space to do his job well, then he is the best person they could have chosen for this. But in announcing this, VW demonstrated once again they do not understand automotive software and safety-critical systems because they are talking openly about software needs to be developed more quickly and with less development time and the hardware built around it. Agile. A quote from Oliver Bloom is, speed is the new imperative to stay competitive. I don't want to hear that. Oh. when you're making me safety critical software at least he didn't say fail fast <laughs> yeah yeah mm. that has no place anywhere near safety critical software it is ridiculous and please somebody teach the senior members of automotive brands the importance of it i was talking to one of our listeners last week and they were at a um automotive software conference it's like a phone <laughs> They were at a, well, funny that, because that was mentioned. They were at an automotive software conference and they were talking to the engineers and the people who are being tasked with making whatever flight of fantasy Mm. become real. And they are as equally frustrated as we are that we express on this show often. And it's so often it is senior management, management and marketing who get involved and say and, and just refuse to try and understand because that's somebody else's thing, and then therefore come out with stupid comments like this that undermine everything. The appearance of speed. Sorry. Yeah, Yeah, the appearance of speed is the thing. So just push out stuff, even if it's a little bit, but people feel they're getting the latest. Yeah. Good luck to everybody at Carriad. Peter Bosch has got his hands really full, Mm. particularly with statements like that from above. (laughs) Half the time, his job will be managing above rather than below i'm sure but i hope folks can get this sorted because i don't want any car company to have bad software bad cars it just lets it lets the whole industry down it does absolutely does andrew next up is you with some fleet data Woo. yes well a while ago emission analytics put out a report saying that electric vehicles due to their weight and size are likely to wear through their tyres more readily than an internal combustion engine equivalent. This caused a lot of furore amongst some of the EV fundamentalists who came back and said, no, you've only looked at the worst possible case. It's not true. Not true at all. Well, we're now actually starting to get real, actual facts to back this up too. From people actually on the roads. Fleet data is now coming in that EV tyres are lasting around 6,350 miles fewer than petrol or diesel. This is from companies who are controlling their own vehicles on the road with their own staff driving them, and they are 
noticing when they have to change the tyres on their vehicles. They are having to do it sooner with an EV than they are with the petrol or diesel. And not only that, but the tyres are bigger and more expensive as well. Yeah. If we can all now put to bed, it is not all EVs. It is not all petrol and diesel. There are obviously nuances in this which always gets lost, but it is looking that EVs are generally causing a bit of a problem for fleets that they now have to factor that into things. This adds another layer when a fleet is looking at revamping their vehicles. This adds another cost layer for them to consider and why somebody may want to hold on to a petrol or diesel longer. There is an interesting point here, and it's by Tim Meadows, chief commercial officer of the company doing it, whose name I've now lost. He is saying is whether this is an inherent characteristic of EVs or a reflection of the types of EVs being operated by fleets. It may be that, you know, there's a, there's a lot of certain particular brands because it's kind of fashionable to have those and also they're there and available and, and, and have good range. Mm-hmm. And is it just that, that skewing to that particular brand or model, it happens to be particularly tire hungry, so maybe that's skewing all of the numbers. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of those hurry up and wait type setups where you've got to look at, look at that. And also the fact that this is going to be the first sets of tires on many of these cars. Yeah. And will people early on be doing the whole, oh, look how fast I can go from 0 to 60? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And wearing out the tires more quickly that way. Or will it settle over time once the initial novelty of silliness? And also, tire technology has moved on. As ever with all these issues, which, like I so say, many always gets lost. Sorry. There is so much nuance in it, but it is an indication. Yeah. And something, therefore, that should be investigated further and will be because fleets want to know down to the third decimal point on what something is oh, yeah. costing them. Because by the time you multiply that by a few thousand cars, as opposed to just the one in your driveway. Yeah. Alan, do you want to take us to Germany? Yes. Okay, cool. When do we go? I've never been. Haven't you? No. It's very nice. It's very it's lovely. Yes, but in this case, we're going to go and we're going to go a thousand kilometers uh, with a Mercedes-Benz truck. Mercedes ran a single hydrogen-powered articulated lorry 1,047 kilometers across Germany on just one tank of fuel. Truck was loaded to the maximum permissible gross train weight of 40 tons in which to do it, and it managed, say, 1,047 kilometers. That's just about just over six. 120 miles-ish. I think we may have a listener that will probably translate that into UK distance. (laughs) How many blue whales was it, Alan? Yes. (laughs) One or two. They successfully successfully managed that problem. Of course, the the fact that they finished up in the centre of Berlin uh, meant there was no way to refuel it to get it back again in one go. It was a one-way journey highlights the possibilities but also the very real constraints currently yes that's basically where i was going i was about to say we know there's all sorts of constraints around uh hydrogen extraction etc 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 uh we we, we all know those we've all listened to this for a while we've all read all the stuff but it shows that on those longer point-to-point journeys there is a space in the commercial vehicle world what it doesn't split down here by the way is what the available payload was to make up the 40 tons, because again, that's one of those aspects that needs to be taken into account. Mm -hmm. 
just how heavy is the tractor unit? How heavy would it be on battery? What's you know how much money could you make from ultimately per load if you're charging per ton or whatever? Lots and lots of again, same as every other story this week. Lots and lots of dimensions in there. We think it's an interesting one, and we think it's worth keeping an eye on just to see what happens with it. Yep. Well, that takes us to Guilt Minute. Quick break in the show where we ask for a tad of financial support to keep the lights on and the hosting running. If you feel that motoring podcasts worth small consideration every month, then you can become a patron. Different levels of patron include different levels of commitment from us to you, including being able to watch the show recorded live. We also have a small range of merchandise in our spring store, from stickers to mugs and t-shirts. But if you don't have any spare cash, and we do completely understand, then you can help us by following for free from a podcast player to receive every show as they're released, and by liking and rating the show in whatever way your podcast supplier lets you. If you've done all that, and some of you do so, thank you very much. Then the last thing you can do is to recommend us to your friends or colleagues. Thank you, everyone that does. Very hmm. much appreciate it. New New Car News next. Andrew, this is this riveting stuff this week. Well, last week we were all about resto mods. This week we're a bit more down to earth and a bit more attainable. We're going to start with the facelifted Skoda Kamik, which is going to be priced from £24,000. This is their smaller SUV going up against the Puma, the Mocha, the Peugeot 2008. Uh, it's going to share the same platform as the Seat Arona, although that's going away, and the Volkswagen Tolivid. Tolivid? Hang on a minute. It's to cross, to live it. Oh, to cross. Oh, right. Okay. There's slight refresh of the externals and there's newer, they say better, but newer tech on the inside. I mean, remember this is VW centered. Mm. Your mileage may vary uh, on that, but there do appear to be buttons and things in the inside. Temperature controls. Yes. It does, it does under dial. So that's good. It's going to start from £24,070 with the SE and go up to 29275 for the Monte Carlo version. Yep. Two of the three engines available are one litre, three cylinders, but the top level is a 148 horsepower, 1.5 litre, four pot. Yay. Okay. Also in Skoda news, the Skoda Scala. Now I do know I've seen one of them. <laughs> the first one is generic. Volkswagen Group. And this is a bit different because it looks a bit like an estate, really. Yes. Skoda Scala has been facelifted as well. It is a segment-defying family hatchback, which means nobody knows what size it is. Somewhere between B and C, I think. Start at £22,095. Be able to order from October. It has had some small changes. I think it's it's mainly it's quite a handsome looking thing. But. Yeah, they're mainly bringing the, the the design language in line with the others, and also mm. you know, the spaced out Skoda across the back Ooh. below the windscreen in black writing on black background. Yes, yes. Three different specifications: you get SE, SEL, and Monte Carlo again. Got lots of kit, and yes, there it is. And car, isn't it really? It is very much a, a car. It's, do you know what? It's not one I would ever consider thinking about or even remembered it existed. Sorry, Skoda. It's not offensive, but it, it does nothing to induce any excitement either. Yes. Uh, oh, it's one of the first vehicles on the Volkswagen Group's MQBAO platform that will allow you to open the boot with a foot gesture. The optional virtual pedal comes as part of the Scala's electric tailgate package. I also noticed that the SEL pictured here, by the way, has Skoda in silver on the black as opposed to the Monte Carlo, which is black on black. Mm. 
Well, going to the other end of the spectrum now. The other end of the spectrum. Rensport reunion took place in California last weekend. You probably know that if you listen to other popular UK motoring-ish podcasts, <laughs> as well as the social medias. But yes, Andrew, why don't you tell us what was unveiled there, and then I'll have a grumble. Porsche have revealed the 911 GT3 R Rensport at the Rensport reunion. There are 77 versions, which I would presume have been sold months and months and months 77 ago. 77 versions, 77 units. Yeah, 77, yes. <laughs> 77 yeah, units. Sorry, not versions. Yes. Oh, sorry. It's based effectively on the current GT3 racing car, and this is track only. Yeah, but unrestricted. So it doesn't have to follow any of the technical regulations. So it's a GT3R without the restrictions of the technical regulations. So it's probably faster. Yes, it would. There's, there's lots of technical details in this car uh, article that's linked. And Porsche has quoted prices 950,000 euros or just over a million dollars. Okay. You'd only buy one of those if you've got, already got a collection of Porsche. Yeah. A collection of significant Porsche. And you haven't flipped any. And you haven't flipped them. And you've generally not been a bit of a prat. They will all have gone. And if you're in that kind of marketplace, uh, if you're in that kind of space, then you, you can afford that and go, okay, we'll add that one to the collection for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Maybe sell off one of the others, but we'll add this one uh, to the collection for a little while. Actually, it does say when you were talking about it, it's probably quicker. In six gear at 9,000 RPM, it is 12 mile an hour higher than the race car. Uh, top speed is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah quite impressive. It's also come to my attention after last week's grumble about retro-modded Porsches that one group was showing off at Rensport Reunion a retro-modded 959. No, everybody, nothing is sacred. Suppose that the chapter eight, they've, they've done stuff like removing the uh, removing the hydraulic suspension system and things, which supposedly was a marketing thing, not an engineering thing. Oh, okay. And sort of then removed all the various panels and all that kind of stuff, get rid of the side indicator repeaters, and supposedly it was pointed out that the headliner was not Alcantara, the headliner was actual suede. Not Alcantara, actual suede. Uh, It does actually sound quite nice, to be (laughs) honest. But when your base car is a 959, this is really going to be a few existing owners updating the cars they already own. The curious question is whether then that update is worth more than the original spec car or whether the original spec car is still worth more. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I suppose that depends how many people decide to do this kind of thing. Yep. Yep. Do you want to take us to a car company who we thought had already told us that they were going to be EV only, but it turns out they didn't? Yes, Nissan have announced that they will only launch electric cars in Europe from now on and we'll see sales of all those combustion engine cars in Europe from 2030. Like yourself, I kind of thought this was already a statement. I thought this was already been announced. This was a, something that was going to happen. I've been thinking about this, and I reckon most of the announcements were happening when they were still busily fighting with yes, Renault, so they were a little bit distracted. What you mean is fighting with themselves? Yes. And, and then it goes, the Japanese, according to Autocar here, and it's Nick Gibbs, who's not a fool, you know? He goes, the Japanese company surprise announcement. It was like, really? I thought it would already been announced. Uh, but maybe we've just read too many of those announcements and that's what the problem is. Yeah, I think that's the... <laughs> I think that's probably the truth. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. 
Uh, so really, current EVs, if you are desperate for a Nissan EV, you can get a Leaf, uh, or you can get the Aria, which has some of the most repulsive alloy wheels on sale right at the moment. Did you see the Peugeot? Yeah, with the slashy asymmetric jobs. Yeah, I wanted to ask what you thought of those. I felt you'd probably like them. I like that they have made it from the concept scribble into production. Do I actually like them? I wouldn't have them through choice. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to take us into points of interest then. Yay! And I'm going to start with a lunchtime watch. Brace yourselves. Either make use of the pause button for all those people who think they have to sit and watch stroke listen to something all in one go. Make use of the pause button or give yourself the luxury of a long lunchtime if you're going to watch this video. Decide to take a French lunch. <laughs> Because it's an hour and 23 minutes long and 11 yes. seconds. And it's from Soup Classic Motoring and it's talking about uh, well, it, it basically showing the restoration of uh, a family car from, that was, in, in, as it says in the description, he was going to go to the scrap heap. It had real big rust issues. It's required a lot of work and the result is beautiful. If you don't already watch George Carellis' other stuff, which isn't normally presented in such a long format, then I strongly recommend it. He is a, a filmmaker by trade, and his sort of... I guess what he likes to do in these is use lots of stop motion, and it's beautifully done. Just subscribe. Yes. You know we only recommend uh, channels and people that we think are good. Yeah, it's an absolute cracker. My apologies, podcast listeners, for the presenter with a sookie sweetie, but it's either that or he dies before the end of the next two stories. Anyway, list of the week this time is from Jalopnik, and it's these are the worst highway rest stops in the world. And it's, it's a little bit of a US-centric one, this one, I'm afraid, folks. Well, that is the world. I mean, it they've is. got the World Baseball Championship. They've got yeah, the World, world Series. American Football Championship. It's called Championship. the World Series, mate. And there uh, isn't. It's a dull game i like cricket but that's a dull game they've got the world american football championship the america is the world come on alan you know i this. have not been to a baseball it's game yet but i i believe it is mostly an opportunity to eat hot dogs and drink beer yes that's that's what i'm told so it is a bit u.s centric by the way we're always open to suggestions of good lists of the week it is the hardest at the moment it is the hardest well, you said last week slot. that the end finally was the hardest they're both. They're, they're both. They are both much trickier to find than news about facelifted EV SUVs and stuff. Yes, the, the the list of the week is also quite tricky because of the proliferation of people using AI generated clickbaity stuff. I think because we will not guff. include that. Yes. We will not include that because someone should be paid to make the content. Yes, it's also the fact that often it's wrong, and we do try to be rightish. Anyway, <laughs> this one. This one is, is, is quite good. Just it, what's, I think what's most enjoyable about this list it isn't necessarily the names of the service areas, although it does give some of us a little mental reminder of where to stop and where not to stop. But it, it's the stories. Yes. It's the stories that go along with why people feel they're the worst. Andrew, do you have one? Do you have a favorite worst? Yes, my favorite worst. Well, actually, I'm stunned that they don't have Exeter's M5 um, yeah, services on great. here because that is one of the circles of hell, particularly mm. in the summer. But for me, I think probably um, I would never go back to this service station. Is the one that had the sign 
saying, please be warned that rattlesnakes might be in the toilet room yeah. because it's cooler than outside. Now, I don't mind a snake. I don't actively seek them out, but I don't need I don't need one to join me while I'm going to the toilet. <laughs> yes. Uh, so this is the Essex Rest Area on I-40 West in California. I am not a snake person. It is my fear. Conversely, by the way, one of my aims whilst I'm over here is to visit to Bucky's. Right, I'm going to take us to the and finally, and we promised we would do this, but it's the Hot Wheels Legend Tour UK 2023 winner, the 1979 MG Beast, and it really goes into detail of this fabulous MG GT that has been made into something that isn't an MGB GT. It has been modified to heck, and it's absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. I like an MGB GT as it is. Mm. This is... As we discussed last week. The, yeah, exactly. I would never think to do this myself, but I think it looks fantastic, and everybody says how beautifully it's been done as well. Yeah. You can click through, have a look at some lovely photos, and read more about it, because we sometimes follow through on our promises. We're not politicians, you know. No, we try and tell the truth. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. I think, I think on which note, uh, that pretty much rounds us up for this week. Anything I've missed? Anything people should be aware of, Andrew? I don't think so. I can't think yeah. of any parish notes. Me neither. All that's left really is for me to remind you that between now and next week, you can give us any feedback and share your thoughts with the show at Motoring Podcast on Twitter and Instagram on Facebook and on the contact page at motoringpodcast.com, the hub of all our activities. Remember, you can support us financially via Patreon, and please leave a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or however your podcast app lets you do such a thing. Andrew, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Best way to get in touch with me is either via Twitter or Mastodon. If you search for Crack Windscreen, you'll find me there. And Alan, if people would like to know more about what other rest stops you would like to visit whilst living in the US of A, What's the best way for them to ask you personally? Uh, you can ask me personally via all the established social medias, uh, as well as Blue Sky, which I'm quite enjoying, to be honest, as a ex-Twitter replacement. Uh, in all cases, I'm at AJP Bradley. That's B-R-A-D-L-E-Y. We'll be back very soon. But until then, I've been Alan Bradley. I've been Andrew Clues. And safe motoring. <laughs>